This is the Let's Get Real Estate Show with your host, Danielle Chason. Full-time investor, strategic consultant, motivational coach, sought-after speaker, and host of your number one real estate investing show, Let's Get Real Estate, where real people are doing real estate. Hey, everybody. It's Danielle Chason here with the Let's Get Real Estate podcast. Welcome back. Today, today we're going to talk about um, the buzz, what's going on out there, because People are talking about development. Everybody wants to now move into development. And what does that look like? And I have the guy for you today, Mark Holland out of Victoria, BC at Holland Planning. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Woo, woo. Thank you. It's a real honor, Daniel. I can't wait because I, I know you're going to drop a lot of bombs. Um, and I know it's going to be a lot of value to the audience. So guys, uh, I hope I hope you've got your listening ears on because I have uh, had the pleasure of watching Mark at the front of the stage. And this guy is so full of knowledge when it comes to development. Um, Mark, give me a little bit of background on your history and what you did, because I know you had, you know, gosh, I mean, you've done so much. But just for the audience so they know who you are and kind of your background, where you came from, um, do you want to share just a, a little bit? Absolutely. No, I'd be happy. And thank you for the invitation, Danielle. This is really great. And I, I really I really love what you're doing with this process. I, I like how you framed it, too. There's a lot of buzz about building communities, about real estate development. You, you can do really well financially in it. It's got a lot of interesting challenges. You know, there's a lot of things we can do in life to make money. But one of the things we get to do when we're in this space is we get to create the communities in which we live, the communities in which our children live, our families, our friends live. It's a it's a very unique unique field to be able to work in, to have ideas that we have in our mind, be able to become absolutely true three-dimensional realities that, that outlast us. So it's a really great place to be. Um, it also happens to be a pretty good hot market right now. And we can talk later a little bit about some of the interesting dysfunctional issues that are going on in cities that are only going to make real estate more valuable over time. So anyone who's interested in getting to this space is very smart to do so because we're not making any more urban land very fast and there's a lot of demand for it. So it's quite exciting. With respect to who I am, I'm a complete accidental urbanite. I was raised in a log cabin in the woods without a TV. My parents uh, both graduated from Berkeley back in the idealistic days. They were on some of the first human rights sit-ins in that community, in that university. And they all wanted to go back to the land as many from their generation did and you know live this authentic, true life in the woods. So. I, uh, my early years traipsed around a bit with them until they found this piece of property in the middle of, literally in the middle of nowhere. And uh, this old house that a Norwegian had built a hundred years earlier, the log cabin, and we moved in. And that's basically where I grew up. So it was a interesting kind of place to grow up, very different than most folks who maybe grew up in a more urban or suburban environment. And then um, went through a school there and then I went traveling. I started tree planting, made a bit of money and decided to start hanging out with people who'd been traveling a lot. So I took off to Europe and I hitchhiked around Europe for a winter on almost nothing. I had $3,000 in my pocket and I spent five months in Europe on $3,000 and that includes the plane fare. So it was, uh, it was lean, but what it meant was I literally walked. I walked everywhere. I walked the streets of so many cities and I'd either hitchhike or grab a cheap train to get to the next one. And then stay in a hostel when I walked. And having come out of the woods, it was uh, it was just, this is pre-internet. So it was just an amazing experience to suddenly run into millennia of civilizations that, that had built these places where people lived and all the new experiences that I got to experience. And I was hooked. So it was a very interesting uh, transition for me. And I came back 
and immediately started studying business and then design because I knew that I wanted to be part of of, of the group of the people who build cities because it was just so so exciting. And those, I mean, we've all traveled at different points in our lives, and we know what those sort of formative moments and they they stick in your mind how you felt, what was there, what that experience was like. Um, so yeah, very a very uh, very interesting kind of an experience sleeping by railway days one day, going into churches and persuading the priest to let me play the uh, pipe organ the next day. And, you know, whatever, just when you're young, you really get out there and experience it. Came back and I did uh, I did degrees in landscape architecture and then in, in urban planning. And, um, and from there then joined the city of Vancouver. I was a city planner for quite a few years, working on sort of the front line of the sustainable development movement at that point in uh, the neighborhood that's now known as the Olympic Village on the downtown waterfront. And then um, branched out, started my own consulting firm. And after about 10 years of that, we built one of the largest planning firms in the country. We sold it and I went into real estate. And I've been in real estate development ever since, really enjoying getting closer and closer to being able to take the ideas and the importance and the values and really turn them into real places, real buildings, real streets, real real experiences, part of people's fabric. Wow, that's amazing. I um I, I'm stuck on what you were saying when you were traveling Europe and then just, you know, seeing and being in awe and seeing how everything was built and developed and then coming home and wanting to be a part of that. That's powerful. I mean, that really had to impact you in order for you to come home and decide what you were going to like. I, I just think that is just amazing. That is a great story. Thank you for sharing that. It is. A, there was a really, there was a really interesting experience. My grandfather was an architect, so we kind of and, and on the farm, this homestead, you know, we built everything by hand. And so, as a, as a, as a young person, I was used to sort of um, building things of sorts, but never of that kind of scale. So to go to a place where you know you're used to really homestead and, and small scale, interesting architectural work. And then go get to see what a city, what a civilization can build and to experience all these different urban environments that I had never experienced before. You know, the streets and the plazas and the beautiful places of Europe really was an interesting um, training ground of, of what was possible. And I think ever since then, Danielle, I've been restless around what I was being taught at university, restless about the norms in my industry. Anyone who works with me in real estate will know I'm always talking about the next innovation. I'm always challenging the land use plan. I'm always changing. I almost never do a project that isn't a CD zone. By that, I mean, for we can get into this a little later, what a CD zone is for those of you who don't know it, but municipalities regulate what you can and can't do, kind of how big it is on any piece of land through their zoning. And there's this, there's two types of zones. One are zones that like, like a single family zone and everything is all the same. And then there's CD zones, custom development zones or comprehensive development zones as they're known. You start with a blank piece of paper and you go, this is what we want to build. So then let's write the regulations around what we want to design, around what, how we want this to function, what kind of uses, land uses and businesses and how they all fit together. So I almost never do a project that isn't a CD zone now, regardless of whether the planners or planners sometimes don't like those because they get complicated. Like, that's the beauty of great places. They're, they're complicated. They're rich. So we need to get our regulations to support the magic that we can imagine in our minds. Let's do that. And if you've ever looked at the zoning bylaws for places like Whistler, which are truly magical places compared to most other urban fabric we live around, 
their zoning bylaws, unlike anyone you'll ever look at. I, it is so much more complex and so much richer and so much more interesting from that from a design point of view and a development point of view. That's how you get that magic. So yeah, it's be, being able to take these experiences. And I, and I think it's really important for your, your, uh, your partners and your participants in your podcast. When you get into development, it's easy to do the easy thing. But there's often a lot of value and interesting, interesting opportunities when you reach outside of that. And, and the, the things that make you think a place are beautiful and attractive and magnetic and better than the same old, same old down the street are going to make everybody else feel the same way, too. And all too often, we forget when we're looking at ways to make money and we're doing very well we, and, and you know, we're dealing with risks and costs. We can let go. We can let go the magic, the reason why we're even doing this. And I really encourage everyone when they get into this business, think about the special places that are about you. What are places that reflect your values and the things you think are important? Because every special place that you go to on your holidays, you get on a plane to fly somewhere to go to a special place, that special place came out of the heart and the mind of some person. It didn't, God didn't make that place. It came out of someone being true to themselves and going, I think we need to do something better. I have a vision for something that's exciting, and I think we can do that. Then you use the technical skills you have to make it happen. Otherwise, we, I mean, we can still make lots of good money doing generic work, and I'm in it, like we're all in that all the time, and there's nothing wrong with it. But it's important to not lose sight of what's special about places and, and what you want to create as a person, because it is your life. It's your money, it's your time that you're pouring into. I think it's more than just technical work to make the magic happen. I think there's the your your uh, the power of persuasion, so your negotiation skills, because I think there's a lot of work to be done at the city level to kind of get them on board because they live in that box and mm. that's that box that you're talking about, right? And so you're right, yeah. but all those beautiful places, it's almost like a beautiful building that was designed by an architect and it came out like this grand thing but these magical places that you're talking about and by the way i want to talk about whistler too just for a brief moment i'm going to circle back to that sure. in a minute but the the uh magical places came out of the minds of a visionary like yourself that said no wait a minute let's throw the rule book out and let's make something different and magical happen here and that's why like that's what you bring to the table and i love it like you're not afraid of the hard doing that is hard because then you got to push people outside of their comfort zone. You got to challenge the cities. You got to make things happen within certain, you know, um, restrictions that you might be imposed. And uh, and I mean, that's where your true talent comes into play. Initially, when I brought you on the podcast, I really wanted to talk about development because most of my audience, you know, the, there is that buzzword. But you know what? I I'm just gonna go with where the conversation is going because this really is your passion and this is what you're great at. And I think this conversation needs to be had for the audience that when you're thinking about development, it doesn't have to look like what it looks like in a box. And I, I'm all over this. So tell me, Whistler, you, you said the zoning map of Whistler looks a lot different than in most places. And you are the reason for that. <laughs> so tell the audience a little bit on Whistler and what you did there. So I've done a few projects in Whistler. I'm certainly not responsible for, for how Whistler evolved. I've done, I've done a few things in and around there or tried to work with teams to try and get them underway. Um, so Whistler, I used to work with um, the visioning team that, that originally visioned Whistler. I wasn't part of them when they did that, but I worked with them for a number of years. And we sort of flew around North America doing different projects where a landowner had a very large piece of land 
and you know would sit down and go, well, what should I do with it? Uh, one story to give you kind of an example of what this was like, we flew into Phoenix um, for this project and it turned out it was the largest private land sale in American history. And they had purchased, I don't know, about 25,000 acres just outside of Phoenix, if my memory serves me right. They stuck us on a bus, drove us for an hour out Phoenix, passed out to this little town, bunch of golf course communities, you know, the classic kind of American sprawl out in the desert there with golf course communities and big homes, drove us through that. And we just kept driving. Pretty soon there was no pavement and it was a dirt road. Then the dirt road kind of ended and there was sort of a graded track. And then it kind of just stopped in the middle of the desert. And they ordered everybody out of the bus. And about this point, you're kind of feeling like, is this a Breaking Bad episode I'm in or, or what's going to happen? But we all get out of the bus and we're looking around and the the, uh, the client kind of goes, okay, so you see the top of the mountains over there? So that's national forest. Other than that, every single square inch of the planet you can see right now, we own. And we don't know what to do with it. And that's why you're here. Help us figure out what to do with this. So that kind of gives you a sense of what, why that story is important is that's where Whistler, Mont Tremblant, a lot of the great, the great destination mountain resorts emerged from was that kind of thinking And this group would really dig into meaning and stories and what the day like minute by minute programming of the activities to get this really rich deep granular granular quality to a place um, which we all experience but it's ironically quite challenging to take it from our experience and bring it into our development planning in the whistler case a lot of what they've done is a uh, is a set of they have a very complex zoning bylaw that really regulates a lot of different kinds of uses because the people who drove the city plan in Whistler and in other areas like other projects like this are actually designers first. In fact, some cases are actually storytellers. This group that I work with actually hired professional storytellers. So these are people who studied creative writing, who studied history. They, they didn't do, you know, architecture, engineering, you know, our, our world. They came to it as instrumental leaders in that. And they said, like, this is what people want to experience. They want to be able to walk out from here and then see that and then do that. When you talk about it this way, it sounds logical. Well, why wouldn't we do that in all of our projects? It's a good question. We usually immediately dive down the rabbit holes of technical work, geotech studies, surveys, riparian analysis, all that kind of things. And often don't go back to what would that amazing experience be to enter this place? And what's the first thing you're going to see? And what's that going to make you feel like? And then how would you like to move there? These great places start with that kind of emotional tenor, that reality. And then we bring the technicians around. And then we go, okay, if this is what we want that to how that to, to be experienced or how that to occur, what do we need to do to make the actual place work? So in some ways, places like Whistler are almost built like theater sets. Like there's a whole industry of residential units and everything else is going on in the background. But that experience you feel of that urban fabric, that street wall everywhere you go has been essentially created almost like a theatrical experience, which is a really rich way to go about that. So when you get inside of a place like, like Whistler or for your listeners, uh, for your participants here, if you're thinking of doing something just a little bit special, something a little, a little more desirable than the competition that's down the road, because in real estate, we're all dealing with highly competitive environments. And it's the subtleties that differentiate us. In much of, the, much of the real estate work we do, we'll try and differentiate ourselves on the kitchen design or the bathroom design, or we'll do a few kind of interior design things. We'll uh, make a nice entrance, get a piece of art and give it a flashy name. And, you know, we think that's good enough. And there's a lot of reason for that because it's a difficult business and it needs to be a bit of a machine sometimes for the larger companies. 
But sometimes just that little bit of extra thought into that theatrical experience of being there that makes it memorable, that makes it desirable, that makes it meaningful, not just another generic place, can absolutely yield big dividends. It takes time. You don't have to hire someone else to do it. You can do it yourself and then work with your, your, uh, your professional team to help make that reality. And that's how places like Whistler came to be. Because if you look at Whistler, why is Whistler a success? What's Whistler doing different? There's, there, is, there are ski hills across North America. Anytime you got a mountain, you got a ski hill. So think of the number of potential ski hill names that exist in North America and how many of them have you heard of? Not very many of them. There's a handful that pretty much everyone knows about. You know, in central eastern Canada, Mont Tremblant is legendary. Same team that did Whistler, IntraWest. Same visioning group behind it, IntraWest here on the West Coast uh, and Whistler Blackcomb. Aspen and some of the areas on that corridor between um, between uh, Denver and Aspen, just a whole host of actually really interesting ones. A lot of them, the same teams worked on. And it was really this deep level of experience and the connection of design, design guidelines to the kind of core development planning and then the financial model that went with it. So, you know, development is something that we go into and it's a whole world and I'm you know, happy to talk through the process and, and really happy to, to, if anyone wants to reach out to me at any point with questions or thoughts, really happy to engage in a conversation with them. Uh, I, I love this community. I love working with people who are getting into it. I think it's just so important. But I believe that, and I say this in the university classes that I teach, that every generation has to remake the world or make the world that they're making in their own image. We, we don't get anything beautiful when we keep ourselves and our experiences out of it. And that's part of what I think traveling through places like Europe and some places in Asia that are just really old and spectacular. They were created not through zoning codes. They weren't created by a bunch of people with Sharpies going, oh, here's how it should be. And they weren't defined by where the water and sewer line have to go, which all too often our lives are seriously hemmed by the Ministry of Transportation telling us what the curve in the road has to be. These were places that were built organically from design geniuses, from, from people with money who said, I want to create something that is memorable and hire great people to do it. We kind of forget that all too often. And so I really encourage you to think up great places you've been, find them and be aware of them and ask, what is different? Why do I feel different about this? Make notes, always be making notes about the places around. And when you come back, you'll find you could probably do a significant number of them without any change to any of the bylaws or any of the regulations or any of the plans. You just thought about it, added a little more meaning and feeling to it. And suddenly your place, your project, suddenly has that je ne sais quoi. It's got that magic sauce. People will come and they'll buy. They, they don't know why they like it so much better. They'll have a hard time. They'll pick a few things. But it's really that you put your soul, you put that experience level into it. Same amount of, same resources, same materials possibly, just some subtle differences that really make, that really add value and create great places. Like for example, on a, um, on a multi-unit development, for example, like just putting an outdoor living space, like an outdoor, what do they call mm -hmm. them? You know, where you, you, where you grow, um, you know, this is the outdoor mm -hmm. gardens, right? So like on the rooftop, having that, mm -hmm. just having that little bit where people can, mm -hmm. can, you know, commune there, they meet and they can, you know, um, share and watching, you know, the plants grow and what they're doing. Like as stuff like that you're talking about, right? Like just because Absolutely. it's a residential complex doesn't mean you can't throw something in there that gives it that flair 
and kind of stands out in a more meaningful way. Because ultimately, as real estate investors, we're looking at, from me anyway, I'm in the residential space, we're looking at providing housing Mm -hmm. and uh, just taking it to Mm -hmm. an extra level. um, I think there's a lot to be said for that, you know, and just also just to make Mm -hmm. the work that we do more purposeful, not just, you know, Mm -hmm. not just, you know, developing a new building, right? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, no, that's a, it's an excellent point that you make, Danielle. And and the, the fun thing about this is let's, let's go to that rooftop deck that you were thinking about. When we think about it, let's say a rooftop deck or a, maybe it's maybe it's even a patio area, our brain can only kind of process its Lego blocks, the Lego blocks that we're going to use to build it. It, it tends to get limited until we go into our experience. And if you think about it, next time you're, you're working with a team on something like this, think about the coolest patio you ever sat on. So one comes to mind for me, uh, Palo Alto. So Silicon Valley, we were down there doing some work, meeting with investors and in one of the projects I was working on. And there's this, there's this place called Santana Row. Some of you, you may or some of your listeners may know about it. It's really kind of a lifestyle center, an older one, but um, it's right part in the middle of, of Silicon Valley and right in the middle. So it's, a, it's kind of like a, a, a big horseshoe shaped area of, of retail with residential above it, some offices. But they created this kind of unique U-shaped street. And right in the middle of it is this big old tree. I don't know how old it is. I mean, the trunk's got to be six feet across. It's this big old gnarly tree. Most of the time, we would all come in and knock that thing down, right? We would just like bring them up. We, we got to wait the parkade to build. You know, get that thing out of here. We got the big root ball we got to deal with. What did they do? They built a deck all around it and preserved it. And it's right in the heart of the place. And then they've got these big oversized chairs, these beautiful outdoor chairs that look like indoor chairs, and they just sprinkled the whole area with them. And it's a hot day in Southern California. You know, you've come off doing whatever you're doing, whether you're looking at projects or holidaying, you're playing golf, whatever, you're coming and you're tired at the end of the day. You see that tree and you see that furniture and that deck. At that moment in your life, there is nothing you want more in the entire world than just to go and drop yourself into one of those comfy chairs in the shade and have a nice cool drink and just pause and just just stop moving and just think about how awesome life is at that moment, right? And then you can see around the corner and they created this sort of little small Spanish-styled, mission-styled little kind of chapel, but it's actually a wine bar. So you can go get your wine and come back. And there's an oversized chess set if you feel like playing with a friend or something. But it's one of those sort of moments. So when you go back to the rooftop or your patio uh, of your new project, why wouldn't we think about those things? We tend to often just kind of put, that's our own experience. We don't think about bringing them into our lives. And yet the most interesting approaches to development occur when we take what matters to us and we take those experiences and we bring them in and we fuse them with what we're doing. Because then all of a sudden that patio or that rooftop, it might be something you work with your design team and they go, well, listen, why don't we create something like this that experiences like that and everybody falls in love with it immediately? That nugget, that nugget of truth and beauty and attractiveness was sitting there in our minds all the time. We just don't go and harvest them and then insert them into the machinery of what we're doing. We tend to keep them apart. And that, unfortunately, is why a lot of projects just kind of don't really have a lot of magic in them. This group that did Whistler and everything else, they had a core. And I'll I'll leave this, you know, if, if you take away nothing from this conversation about Whistler and these stories of travel, there's two things your project must have. It must have logic. It's not a real product. You can't build it. It doesn't have logic, financial logic, regulatory logic, that logic, but it also needs magic. So in every project, look at that and see what you can do. That's the logic. Without it, it doesn't work. But this is what's going to make it fly. This is what's special. And that's where the meaning sits. And that's where that extra experience you get 
extra value on both financial as well as just kind of the whole experience of it. Uh, and for the community, for your buyers, for your participants, that's where it lies. Logic and magic. We need it in our lives. That's great. Logic and magic. Logic and magic. I love that. I think, um, no, you're so right. Uh, you said just now, you'd said, you know, we, we have those ideas. We just need to go harvest them. And I do believe that when we allow ourselves the right to explore and you just open your mind to exploring just because you're having an idea doesn't mean you got to follow through on that and it doesn't mean that is a good idea but at least explore those ideas and get curious about them and that sounds to me that's really what you're saying here is that hey when you're doing developments you know don't be scared to kind of explore that and then find the magic so love that absolutely love that so when um so when, you know, like to, to talk about development, you said something earlier um, that really I wanted to circle back to you. You said create the communities in which we live. Like you wanted to be able to create, like be a part of creating the communities in which we live. And that for me right there, when you said that, it kind of triggered something because, you know, when I think about development, I just think about development. I don't actually, until this this very moment, I didn't really think about you know, being a creator of a community that my children or my children's friends or my family, like my friends might one day live in. And so, um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be, you know, just the, what we think it is. Yeah, It's bigger than that. Like you just blew my mind open. Yeah. It's really bigger than that. And so, wow, that's just my most. So I would love to expand on that a little bit. And, um, you know, just, just, you know, creating, I mean, that's exactly what we've been talking about the whole time, but creating the communities we live in, like, um, I just great. had a huge mindset shift and I want to thank you for that. It's a, it's a unique... um, but what would you tell, what would you tell yeah. a new client who has kind of that old mindset? Like, what would you tell them to inspire them? So you have an audience right now and I just want you to like, what do you tell them? Like, Hey, go out there and create. It's a great. It's a great point, and it's it's one of the interesting things where development and communities and municipalities that we all have to get permission from to do every little thing that we do, where things get missed is in that magic, that logic, that sense of creation. The gatekeepers that sit within most municipalities all have, you know, uh, they all they're all good intent, um, usually fairly well educated, thoughtful people but they have no idea about what you go through daily, Danielle, or what all of your, all of the folks here who are with you on your podcast or myself, what we go through on a daily basis to grind through the process of creating a development. Um, and it's, it's for us, the successful ones, a lot of successful developers find a way to reach into the community, to reach into that municipality and show them that they care about what they care about. Like we care about what they care about. We're trying to do what we can. Most of the folks on the other side of that table really have no idea what a pro forma is. They don't understand absorption rates. They don't understand the stock and trade of, you know, the basics of what we have to deal with all the time to even get a project and persuade someone to help finance it and things like that. Um, but if we can keep that common ground of, of what we're trying to create, the bigger story of creating community, I think it's key. You and I, you know, last time when, when, when we met and, and had some really great conversations in that presentation, I talked about this need to be a social capitalist. 
uh, capitalist, the logic of capitalism and what we do, no questions. It's how the world works. That's how, what, what makes the world go around. You know, you can be very successful in it. It's a great, it's a simple, straightforward program, and it really generates a lot of value and a lot of wealth and a lot of creativity. But we do have to, because we build communities, because the buildings we build are there, because they're part of the places where people will live their lives and go through the experiences they have, it, we, we need to think about what a great community is as we go. You don't have to just get out your checkbook and start paying for everything. That gets. I've had clients that really were way too community oriented and not enough capitalism oriented. And they don't, they don't, things don't end well for them. Uh, they lose a lot of money. The people who invest with them lose a lot of money. I mean, the good feelings are great until then there's no good feelings left because the logic wasn't there. So the two have to go together, but really helps add meaning to how we make our money. With respect to how to move into it, um, this is something that I think is really valuable with what you're doing, Danielle, is you're, you're bringing forward the conversations about how we do this. Um, very interesting about, I'm, I'm quite intrigued about how difficult it is to find good information on how to do development. Um, it stimulated me as, a, as an educator and having, I, I helped start a planning school, a graduate school of planning at the university where I, I lived uh, recently. And I'm still one of the curriculum, I'm, I'm one of the, basically drive a lot of the curriculum amendments all the time. I'm a professor there. And my planning students are taught on the first weeks of class, I take them into real estate development. So they're going to spend the next two years learning about community and regional and citywide planning and just a host of issues related to it. Um, but you're starting with the Lego blocks. If you don't understand the cost of running a water and sewer line, then when you get out your fat marker and start planning the region, there's a very good chance that 90% of what you're going to do is not feasible. You need to understand what our lives are like, who build the buildings in which you live, work, play, shop, and learn, right? That's, this is what, so they learn that from the beginning. And then all the rest of their planning, their city planning training, all comes standing on the shoulders of what you and those who are watching this podcast do. Because if it doesn't work for us, then you don't get anything built. You just have words on paper that actually cause a housing crisis because what was in the plan couldn't be built because they didn't know what it took to get something built. And I think that's one of the biggest reasons why we have a housing crisis is that the people who make the plans and hold the regulations don't understand what we do. If they did, it's, it's complex what we do at some level, but at another level, it's pretty simple. If you can't make the money work to get a bank to lend you 70% of the money it's going to take to do it, then it doesn't work. And most of the folks on the other side aren't understanding that the money the bank is lending you to do your projects are the life savings of their parents. It's their parents that put their money in the bank, and it's that money that's being lent to you and I to build the homes that we build. And so we need to understand that. But it's interesting that the, the re part of the reason why they don't understand it is that there's just so little information available in a coordinated way about how to do real estate development the steps that you go through, the kinds of tasks that you do. We're just launching a, a, the first certificate program with the Urban Development Institute. I've written the curriculum for it um, in, in outline, and now I'm finding the faculty to teach in this uh, on how to be a real estate development manager. And it's really interesting because all of us who are part of the teaching group, they're doing it, are having new experiences of having to go into what we do because most of us kind of learn on the job and you just do it intuitively um, of having to break it apart and, and, and organize it and figure out actually how we could do kind of learning to ourselves as we go through this of how, how do you actually do this? Um, obviously the first step in this process is you need to find land. It's the one thing you have to have to be a real estate, to be in real estate development because it's about real estate, it's about land. So you really need to get land. And today, that's a really interesting challenge. It's become almost a whole separate sub-profession 
uh, in the business of just knocking on doors, trying to figure out how to put joint ventures together, trying to deal with tax implications for families and estate sales, trying to get a piece of land that we can do something with because all of the popular urban areas where many of us live and there's lots of money to be made in our business, um, getting land is the big challenge. So that's really the first piece of work that you have to do. Concurrent with that, I'll just do a quick overview of the development process for anyone who's, you know, any of our participants here. So they have kind of a sense of the big picture and we can talk about any piece of it in much more detail if you wish. Concurrent with your piece of land is you need a concept because you have to figure out how much you can pay for your land. So you need to do kind of a yield study to figure out, well, what am I putting on there? Is this a duplex project or is this a four story project? Or am I going to have to get a coffee shop in here to kind of make something special happen or maybe more retail? What is it? So you end up with this kind of this kind of joined uh, this this um, Gemini two faced entity, my piece of land and what can I put on it and what you can put on it when you look at it is one thing. What the municipality will let you put on it is another thing. And you don't know what's in the ground at the time. So you don't know how long the pipes are going to have to be redeveloped or what all the other costs. So there's this kind of this little nugget of work we do at the very beginning where we're finding good land and then we're figuring out a concept. And then based on how much we think money we can make with a back of the envelope pro forma, that tells us how much we can afford to pay for the land. And then we start the negotiations with the landowner. And sometimes they want way too much. Walk away. If you pay too much for your land, your projects, you're, you're, you're bankrupt before you got started because you will never, ever find your way out from behind having paid too much for the land unless you can just live with it. If it's got a bunch of rental units on it now and you can just hold it until the overall market comes up to where now the price you paid back then now is the right price, then you can move forward. And this this does happen sometimes. Sometimes you have to sink, sink assets in to hold something for the right future. But that's a lot of assets to sink in there unless it's a great revenue property and you can basically afford to hold it as is with just your down payment in there, which doesn't happen very often today. So land and your concept become really, really key. How much you... How magical that concept is depends on how fast the absorption will be, depends on how what, what, what the experience is. Um, great places can charge a lot more for their retail rents. They can charge a lot more for the residential rents or the residential sale prices. So that magic we were just talking about, this is where you start really thinking about that. What's that little true nugget, that little glowing piece that's going to make this special? From there on, then you have to move through a couple of other steps. You need to refine that. You need to test this with your investors and your financiers. You need to go and talk to them early on and say, I, I, I picked up this piece of land. Are you interested? The reason why is that as you get into these banks that are often our main financing, you know, we may have friends and family or bro, other, other equity investors in our projects for the 30% of the money that really is our money that we have to put in. The other 70% we typically will borrow different ratios throughout it. But a bank needs to believe in the process. They need to see all the real numbers. They need to make this thing work. And the other thing that we often don't remember about it is that if you're a banker, you've been given $20 million to lend into the real estate space as part of your portfolio of investments. But the real estate space is broken up into a lot of sub pieces. So there's lending the land for the land purchase or the servicing if you have to put in roads and, and sewers and water lines and a subdivision. Um, then there's lending to the buildings um, and the construction process and things like that, they allocate in their portfolio monies to this. So if you think that you've got something in the queue, you're really wise to go and have a chat with your bankers early as you possibly can and say, I'm thinking of this, this is what I'm doing. Because all bankers do all day is listen to people like us. 
coming through idea after idea after idea. They finance them, they live through them, and they see whether they win or lose. And uh, you want to know which contractor to hire, sit down and talk with your banker. I've learned some really great things from bankers I've dealt with. They said, about like, I'm looking at these three contractors, and I utter the first name. They line back. They roll their eyebrows. They go, have you ever been to one of their construction sites? Oh, my God. I, who else is on your list? That kind of thing. You know, So you're... To let your banker know early as possible what you're thinking about because they'll give you a pile of wisdom because they want to lend money to you. That's their job is to lend money, but they want to lend it to the right project with the right team. So your bankers, like your appraisers, are the two most underused groups in your network as you're moving forward with things. So once you're pretty sure you got the money and you've got to land in an idea, then you need to move forward essentially through the design and approvals process. So this is where you bring on your architects and landscape architects and engineers and get your preliminary concept together. You start working with your municipality to get your approvals. How many approvals are required? Depends differently on every project. You need to amend the community plan. Is it just a rezoning? Are you just getting a development permit? Zoning's all fine. Uh, or are you just getting a building permit? Because all those other ones, you bought a piece of land that had everything in place and, you just, and you're fine with what they got approved and you're gonna go build it. Totally legitimate at each one of those, and we all get involved in those at different points. If you're building a bit of a development company, you'll actually buy land at different stages. Because if you have to amend the community plan, and then get an area structure plan approved, then a rezoning, then all the development permits for phase one and do all that, you're going to be at that for a while. It may take you several years before you even start construction. If you can buy a project that's got the development permit and you're just going to get your building permit done, or you can even buy one with a building permit, you got product in the market. You can pre-sales right now. You got product out within months, and now you got cash flow, um, and you can stage this up. With some of my clients, when we're working in different municipalities, they're bringing a lot of money into a region. We'll work with the municipalities that are really easy to work with, and literally sometimes buy projects that already have a development permit in place. So we just tweak a little bit of it. There's almost no politics. We get on with building the building, and then we'll get on to another community nearby that takes three years to get the approval. So you know, get let's start there. Let's get that in the in, in the pipeline. So about the time this comes out, because everybody else is scared of that community too. So there may be some deals. There may be some good things. And either way, people, there's always demand So in an urban area. So people want to live there, but there's not much product because everybody's scared off of the approvals process because it's very political. Take our time. We but Then you're not in a rush. So you kind of queue your thing up depending on where you're at. The approvals process is really one of the make and break components. I think, you know, in the arc of a development process, you know, you kind of come up out of land and the money. And then if you can't get through the approvals process, everything stops. And everything you're doing on the way up has to work for the approvals process. When you get out of the approvals process and you're just into the design and construction and sales, then you're kind of on the arc down from that one because it's all pretty straightforward. It's not easy, but it's straightforward. The big unknown is sitting there in the political approvals process. So becoming skilled at how to deal with municipalities, with mayors, with staff, with all the complexity of what they demand through that process is really key. Many of us, I've played roles across that entire area where my company is right now. I've ended up in the middle of that space now doing things that, you know, I can run a very big development project, but I find myself organizing public meetings because there's a lot of people with land and developers that get that this is, this is a whole different skill set. And, and it's so complex and challenging. Once you've got your approvals, you've now added, because it's so complex, you've now added so much value to your land, you can often have just the land lift value 
basically equal all the rest of the equity you need to bring into it. You may not need to bring another piece of cash to that project after you get that. Get the land reappraised. It's suddenly gone from value A through that process to value D, and value D is a lot more. Now, the cities are going to reach in there. They're going to try and take some of that value. They call it land lift, and they want it as a community amenity contribution. So you never get all of it, and you have to negotiate hard for it. After that, then you're moving into a combination of sales and construction fast. You can start pre-sales partway through your approvals process, but you need to get your construction. Then the clock is really ticking because as soon as you move to spending real money on hard things, you spend a lot of money fast. Whether you're building the product or putting in pipes and wires and roads, um, one of the projects that I was involved in for a long time, we have the approvals process is going to take several million dollars um, over several years. The first shovel that goes in the ground is going to cost us $25 million. We have $25 million to put into the land before we can start on the first building. So think about the profit margins that you're getting off some of these projects. I mean, we're looking at somewhere between 150 to 500,000 in profit, depending on what it is, what we're doing, whether we're doing land in the building or just that. Think about how many of those you have to sell to pay back $25 million. Well, you better hope the market's hot and you can move a lot of product because that's a lot of land you have to offload just to begin to start on your first building. So thinking about where that is, the clock starts ticking pretty fast when you get into that space and you need to get product into the market. So good construction team, good sales marketing team, and you need to get out there and get that done. The process of grinding through the construction is a whole new world unto itself. And a lot of us kind of don't get involved too much in that. We hire construction managers and construction liaison people to do that. Once you've got that, then you need, you've got home warranties, you've got real estate development, marketing acts, um, disclosure statements, a lot of work from that to do. Then you get out the other side and get this sold. And the final thing to remember is that all of your profits in the last few units, if you're running a project, typical project, 15% profit margin on, on, on revenue, um, that means all of your profits. If you have a 30 unit building, all your profits in the last two units, which of course, by definition, are the hardest to sell. So really working with your marketing and sales team to get those last units out is everything because that's where you make the extra money. You paid yourself back as you went, but that's when you start to make the profits that we all really enjoy making in these kinds of projects. Now, that was just a few minutes to give you a full run through the process. Actually, it can be quite challenging to go and find very much information on how to do that as someone who either wants to help run their own projects or more importantly, wants to is an investor in something and wants to keep an eye on what one you want to keep an eye on your money. Like, how, are, how is this team working? So if you have a sense of that process, um, and it's, you, you can learn what questions to ask of your consulting teams, of your contractors, or anyone else you're involved, even if you're a more silent investor, to make sure that it's passing your straight face test as you go. And, and that, that helps you steward your money. Wow. Like, that is a lot. You unpacked a lot right there. Um, so I guess, like, what I'm seeing, like, every step of the process, like, the person, the developer, the developer is really the visionary who just is putting all the pieces together. Because at every step of the way, you have different people doing different skill sets. And as a developer, you can't look at yourself and say, well, I'm going to do this and you're going to be the one that facilitates the whole process because it's going to be a mess and your risk is going to be really high if you're doing that. So, um, like, Absolutely I'm sitting right. here going, hmm, do you only work in BC or would you come out here? Because if I go into this space, can I hire you? That's my question. <laughs> 
Yeah, most of my work, I'm a small team right now. Most of my work is in BC. Um, but uh, I do work, I do definitely work in other areas, particularly on interesting projects that I think have, you know, have a lot of meaning, a lot of intrigue and a lot of innovations and value. The, the name of my company is Holland Planning Innovations. I love, you know, doing those extra things. There are development consultants uh, asking around for a few folks. You can often find development consultants who will help you through this process wherever you are. What's of special importance is that every project is unique because it's a different piece of land. It's a slightly different product and market combination. Most importantly, the community that you're doing it in is probably maybe different. You may get a di even the same community may get a different planner. The actual engineering planning issues for every property are slightly different. So one of the things you get used to, Danielle, in this process is not knowing. Essentially, you live in the unknown all day long and your experience, your friends, this group, you know, podcasts, they're your flashlights. You're out there in the, in the night, in the dark. We're just, uh, you know, we're, we're all pretty much always alone in this process. You want some good people around you, but you have to pick your way through this darkness. And nobody, as the development, as a person who's into the development process or helping coordinate it, you're really the only one that's having to walk all of that. People come and they help you for a little piece of it, but they're usually very they're very um, defined and they're defined by you. I need you to do this and I need you to do that. And maybe your team's working together. It's always good to get your team working together because their brains are collectively smarter when they work together. But really, you're, you're going to be in the unknown all the time. And so you have to get used to it. Um, you have to get comfortable with it. This is not a business. This is not an industry for people who aren't comfortable with risk and don't get a buzz out of figuring out solutions to problems. Because as we talked about earlier, it's just one endless list of challenges and, and the fun and the art and, and the business is figuring out the solutions to those challenges. And yeah, like you say that, and it's, it's so true because I always tell people like every municipality is different. And as a planner, and if you're working in different municipalities or a real estate investor or real estate developer in different municipalities, they're all going to have their own sets of rules. There is a standard provincial and a federal mandate, but then on top of that, there's the municipal bylaws. And so you have to work within that. And then the challenges too, is that sometimes those bylaws change. Sometimes the people within the municipality are aware of the current bylaws. Some are still working on past bylaws, it's always changing. And so that is really challenging and you do have to be a problem solver and okay with hitting these roadblocks and getting under them, over them or around them if you have to go through them, but somehow find a way to the other side. So. Um, you're so right about that. There's one last thing I want to bring up before we sign off, because you had said, you know, essentially all the profit is in the last two units for, in, in your example, right? Now, here's the one thing, like I flipped houses for five years and I teach people on how to flip houses. And when I'm sharing on how to flip houses, the biggest thing that I tell people that they don't realize when they get into it, it's that it's money out, money out, money out, money out. And then there's one last payday. Like, I don't know that people really grasp that concept that payday doesn't happen until you sell. And not when you're done doing the construction, but it's actually when you close. So I always tell people it's from close to close. And development is very much the same way. So you close on the acquisition of the land and then, and then it's this. And, you know, for me, it was months <laughs> in flipping, but development, you're doing this you know, and paying the Mark Collins and the builders and the developers and you know, all of that for years, absolutely years. Yeah. So you got to make sure that you're yeah. organized and you know what you're doing. There is a money game behind this real estate business that nobody talks about. And, um, and it's really key, especially in development that you have that honed in. So 
thank you so much for highlighting all of that. Sorry, go ahead, Mark. What, one of the thoughts about that for people who are just getting started or early in the process, Danielle, I mean, and you absolutely nailed it, is that a lot of folks think developers make a lot of money and they can. If they're smart, they can and they should. They should get return because they're risking so much. They're risking everything. Their, their houses, typically a lot of the banks require you executive recourse. You're signing up your house, even if it's worth you know a million or two million um, and you just borrowed 70 million, um, it's a drop in the bucket, but they want you to feel the pain. They want you to feel the pressure of you got to deliver. Um, so you're, you're, you're always in that situation of, of, of money going out and the stresses of the money. Um, and a lot of developers start with a lot of money because of that. And they put together an equity group, but you really need to make sure you have enough equity to do this. Because if you run out of gas halfway to the next, it's like, like driving across Australia, you run out of gas halfway between, you know, Darwin and Perth, you're toast. You're in the middle of nowhere. There's no gas station. So you got to make sure you got a full tank before you get there. So the money game is fundamental on this one. The other thing, though, for people who are bootstrapping it, and your story about flipping houses is a perfect example, is when you get started, and this is what my wife, we still do this. We spent the last four weekends working on a rental project that we hadn't renovated for a decade and a half because we had great tenants, and now we brought it back to market at a much higher rate. We do, we're doing the work. Because when you sit down and run the numbers, yeah, there's a few weekends there and we're getting older and it really, our backs are killing us at the end of the weekend from laying floor. And I was, two weekends ago, I was pulling the sink out, redoing all the plumbing in a place that had gotten probably a change in the toilet. When you're getting started, you got to do a lot of the work yourself. And that's where a podcast like yours or any other source of good information basically takes you and your skill set out enough to figure it out. So you're taking risks. But the money that's going out the door isn't as big. So when you're starting, you can start very small um, and slowly build that up. It's certainly how my wife and I made our wealth was we did most of the work. We started just small, literally with next to nothing when we started um, and slowly built. And we would sell and split and go do two things and fix that up and then make that work and borrow against that to do this. You can do it. You get, And it's kind of part of the fun. If you got the buzz on for it, then you're figure, learning plumbing. You're learning electrical, you're learning how to lay floor, you're learning how to do all this stuff in your projects. You'll probably start by flipping homes, even apartments sometimes. That's all you can do. Find a really messed up apartment in a good building. <laughs> Preferably, you know, go in looking for, today brass is back in. That used to be my wife's and I thing. It's got to have brass knobs. If it doesn't, well, then it's probably too old. Or uh, like a brass knobs are great because it means it's probably in the late 80s, early 90s. Everything is dated. It looks awful. It's all arborite. It's it's just the worst looking place. Lick a paint, new floor, pull the, you know, maybe replace some doors, new cabinets, uh, new appliances, new flooring. You can do all of it yourself with a few skills or get some friends to help you out initially or something or learn. Just go on YouTube and learn the skills. That cuts your costs way down. Then you get to participate in the real estate game of adding value and selling and making a lot more return on your time. And after a while, you can build up enough equity that then you can start to play in the next level of maybe new build or coming in as an as an as a investor in a new project um, and start to begin to make a lot more money off that. So, yes, the big projects, money just pours out the door, but it doesn't mean that you have to have a lot of money to start. You just have to start small and do it yourself and learn as you go, which makes you better later when you're managing other contractors because you're looking at them going, no. No, I don't think you need to do that because I know if I was going to do it, I would do it this way. And it helps keep the costs down later on, keep the money from going out quite so fast. Well, knowledge is key to everything. But, you know, you, you brought up a good point, though. Like, you know, I started flipping. I flipped single family homes and I did duplex conversions. Now I'm doing multis. 
And, but, you know, I didn't start in the Maltese. I wasn't flipping Maltese, right? And so you got to start somewhere small. And just because the word development is such a big word doesn't mean you got to start big and yeah. do a whole subdivision. You can start small, whether it's yeah. buying a, a piece of land and you're building a duplex on it and then go that route. Maybe it's a single family. It's zoned for single family. You got to go through the zoning process, maybe for a duplex. Um, and then you learn the process and you get the skill set, exactly what you're saying that you need in order to grow. So, uh, but you know what? Fantastic. Listen, I am so stoked to have you on the show today. Like it was amazing. Thank My you pleasure. so much. Now, if anybody wants to reach out to you, I know there's a lot of investors that follow us out in the BC area and they may want to be in the yeah. development space and you do a little bit of consulting too, right? So I don't know Absolutely. how much you do yeah. of that, but you do consult as well. Um, and if anybody even wants to take one of your courses, I know you've got your book out, all of that fun stuff. So if they were to reach out to you, um, email is the best way? Email is the best way. I, I, my day is pretty full, so then I can deal with it when I've got the windows of time to deal with it. I, and I'd be, like I say, I'd be happy to have a conversation, offer some thoughts. I know people in different parts of the province, happy to do introductions to folks who are out here or elsewhere if I've got contacts. Um, I'm, I, I believe that all of us who are building communities and building cities and building projects are a community ourselves. It's a special life. It's a special, almost a calling. You get excited about it. You get hooked on it. It comes with so much hard work and risk, but it's also incredibly satisfying. And most all of us will do whatever we can to help help each other out as we go. So, yeah, I'd be happy to engage anybody who'd like to chat. So if you want to reach out to Mark, his email address is mark at hollandplan.com. That's Mark, M-A-R-K, at Holland, H-O-L-L-A-N-D, plan, P-L-A-N, dot com. It's all going to be in the show notes, guys, so don't worry about it if you didn't, uh, if you're driving, if you're out and about, um, listening, if I'm in your ear right now, um, it's going to be in the show notes, so just go to the show notes, or you can check out Mark uh, Mark's bio on the website at letsgetrealestatepodcast.com. All of his information is going to be there, his contact information, and a link to the book if you're interested in getting his book. Um, he's got a book, which is called the urban magnate book, which is fantastic. It's got like very, um, what would you say? What is the word I'm looking for ahead of the time? Like very advanced thinking in it when it comes to planning and development. So, um, there's all kinds of interesting stuff in there, um, that, that, um, Mark is doing and actually being a bit of a trailblazer. I know you're really humble, Mark but you are being a trailblazer with some of the things that you're doing with the agricultural urbanism now, which you've really, uh, really kind of settled in. And now you're working on the industrial and social urbanisms. Um, and I just love all of that. And I want to know, I, I'm going to bring back, I want an update on all that stuff. If you'd, yeah. if you'd come, yay. Woo-hoo. Okay. So, but in any event, I just want to say thank you to my listeners as well. And to you, Mark, for being here. And um, just because I know you're a super busy guy and just to take like an hour of your day to come and hang out with us, uh, little people, I just am truly, truly, truly grateful. So, and to the listeners, I am thankful that you trust me and my guests to help you on your real estate journey. Don't forget to like and hit the subscribe button. If you think that this was valuable in development, you know, somebody out there that could uh, benefit, don't forget to share. And of course, you want to hit that notification bell. That way you can be notified as soon as I release another podcast episode. Um, And most importantly to me, what is important to me is that you comment. I want to know what you think about the episode today. Was it helpful? What was your biggest takeaway? And, um, you know, send a little note. Let Mark know. um, Let Mark know that that he helped you a little bit on your journey. And, um, yeah, I'm so excited 
to have you back, Mark. Like we're not even done and I want to bring you back already. Woo -woo. So excited. Thank you again for being here. This, I'd be honored. Is, this is Danielle Thank Chase. You, Danielle. Oh, you're quite welcome, honey. You're quite, quite welcome. Uh, this is Danielle Chase on signing off for the Let's Get Real Estate podcast. This is where real people are doing real estate. Bye for now. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast and congratulations on improving your education real estate. Please leave a review only if you felt we provided value as it would really help us if you would leave a five-star review so that we can help reach a broader audience. And don't forget to comment what you enjoyed and tell us what you are looking to learn more about. As always, thanks for your support and we'll see you on the next episode.